This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Welcome to our Sunday morning edition of Daily Thunder, uh, which for all practical purposes is our Sunday service, or our, our campus uh, chapel service uh, here on a Sunday morning. And we do this every morning of the week for those of you that are unfamiliar with this. Uh, and on the weekends, we're an hour later than our weekdays. We start 9.15s on Saturday and Sunday, but uh, on the weekdays, it's 8.15. And it's become a really fun tradition for us just to uh, preach the word of Jesus Christ every day. Uh, I uh, personally am typically going to be teaching on Mondays, Wednesdays, Fridays, and Sundays. And I've been going through a very uh, long series. Uh, I think uh, the students have joked about that because the whole time they were in town, basically, I was going through my series on World War II. So it's called Spiritual Lessons on World War II. I used to, uh, historically, Eric Ludy has been made fun of for having long messages. However, I have proven in Daily Thunder that I can do shorter messages. It's just that when, when you have a whole week to spread out your messages, or weeks, it's, and so this is actually really fun for me, so I can take things and unpack them at a greater degree than I could when I was just doing Sunday services. So this is like sucking on candy for me. And World War II is extremely fascinating to me. Of course, just war is fascinating to me, but it's not because I want to be in it as much as I recognize spiritually I am in it. And so therefore, I want to be clear and have a forthright understanding of what it means to be engaged in battle and how to win it. I want to know the weapons of warfare that are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds, and I want to know how to wield them effectively. There is a well-known Christian leader that got, he, I, he and I don't see eye to eye as far as our viewpoints. Uh, he has a tendency to go a little uh, uh, mushy uh, and jello-y in his understanding of Christianity and, and truth. And he, get, he got fed up with the idea of war, that Christians talk about war and battle. And he said, I am sick and tired of the war metaphor being used in Christianity. And I think right there is a, is a statement of our times where we, we think of it as a metaphor as opposed to an actuality. This is not a metaphor. This is reality. We are engaged in a battle. And when you come to Jesus Christ, you are in a battle, you are in a war, and you will get hit. One of the illustrations I use oftentimes at Ellerslie is I have someone stand up in the front and I shove them. It's fun. Uh, it's a lot of fun. And they fall back in their chair. At least that's the concept. Uh, and then I, you know, I, I act shocked. Like, why did you fall backwards? I mean, come on, what's going on? And they, well, you shoved me. And well, why did, why did you fall backwards? So, well, you didn't tell me you were going to shove me. And so I, I have them stand up again, which they're a little wary of. And I say, okay, let's, let's change things up. I, I am about to shove you. Now let's see how we handle this differently. 
You see, if you are told that you're going to be shoved, it's interesting, but it changes your position. And you go from a passive stance to an actively engaged wrestling stance. You get into a position that cannot be shoved. And the same is true in your Christian life. You are going to be shoved. You are going to be hit. So if you know that ahead of time, pick up your weapons. Get into a battle position. Understand how a soldier is supposed to engage with a spiritual battle so that you can win it. Christ has given us everything we need to win. So there's actually no excuse for this loss that we experience. We have to understand our position in Christ and our weapons in Christ. And so that's the profound picture that comes out of this rather long series, which now this is the 17th part. Uh, and this one is called the hobble arm. Now for, for any of you that have been around Ellerslie for a longer period of time, that triggers things in your mind because I gave a message quite a few years ago now called the heaven bred war horse. And it, it's just very, it's again, like sucking on candy for me. This thought is so intriguing to me. It's, it's, it's deeply set in my passion bank. So if you were to start uncorking me and un, you know, taking out, you know, everyone has a little box they stick under their, their bed when they're growing up and they have their little treasures in it. Well, if you take out my spiritual box of, of treasures that God has given me over time and I stick it in my little box, the Hobbelar is one of them. And so this is a very significant thing. And it's in the history of war. It's a, it's a very standout uh, element. And so, you guys, do you see what episode we are, by the way? 299. Uh, now, the reason that stands out to me is because on iTunes, once you get to 300, they start eliminating the previous ones. So 301, now the first episode is like gone. <laughs> just vanished. So that's a lesson for all of you. Better go and get uh, session one before it disappears. The hobble arm. Oh, my clicker's not on. Sorry, guys. <coughs> Esther 4.14. For if thou altogether holds thy peace at this time, this is Mordecai speaking to Esther, this critical moment in Jewish history where the Jews are going to be exterminated and Mordecai appeals unto Esther, for if thou altogether holds thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed, and who knows whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this. God developed a hobbler. I'm not going to explain to you what a hobbler is. I'm going to hint at it and build it up so that you really catch the idea. But God is going to develop a hobbler in and amongst this hostile nation, which actually has a law passed, a decree passed, which is going to exterminate all Jews. But God has a solution. He has a deliverance prepackaged, pre-thought out. The term providence is very appropriate when you look at the book of Esther. Pro means ahead of time. Vision, pro-eyesight. Providence is a provision. It is a vision of something ahead that God alone has, and so he is going to see ahead what is needed, and he is going to supply for it, and that's called providing. Provision, providence. God sees the needs of his people ahead of time and is going to make supply. He is going to put Esther into a key position ahead of time before the need is there, and then unlock his key hobbler. He is going to bring it out of his war chest at just the right moment. So they, for such a time as this principle, when you're talking about World War II, you talk about any war, it's interesting how much providence will come up because there's so many things that will happen that are so mystifying uh, when you see the course of nations directed. And it's, it's because there are supernatural things that will happen. Uh, 
God always has a means of salvation. This is just a fact. I'm going to lay it on the table for you. God always has a means of salvation, always. He always has a ram caught in the thicket, a shepherd boy delivering bread and cheese at just the right time, a queen positioned just in the perfect spot at just the right moment in history, or a Messiah giving himself over into the hands of sinners in the fullness of time. God is salvation. That is his work. He saves. And he is ready to work a marvelous salvation in our day. So you could look at this on the individual level. You could look at this on the corporate level. Because you know, if we talked about the church, and we said capital C church, where are we at in the world? Well, we're on the ropes. We're weak. We're vulnerable. The truth of the word of God is actually compromised in our day and age. We're clear understanding that the word of God is the word of God and that what it says is accurate is suddenly confusing and people don't get it. It's not being taught with clarity anymore. Well, that makes us vulnerable as the church. You know what we need? A savior. Or for this message, we need a hobbler. We need God's means of deliverance now. Is it possible that God is positioning his solution in place, though we can't see it right now, for such a time as this? I gave a message in this flow of, uh, of messages on World War II. In 1939, Great Britain contrasted with 1940, Great Britain. 1939, Britain, Great Britain is one of the most pathetic pictures of a nation you would ever see. And if we studied it, you guys would laugh out loud. You would make fun of it. You'd want to mock it, spit upon it. It's just terrible. They are weak. They are passive. They don't care about evil. That's not their business. Let Hitler have whatever he wants. 1940, Great Britain is completely different. In fact, many people in history are going to say it's one of the greatest generations of all time are going to be the people that are going to rise up and fight in World War II that were there in 1939. Wait a minute, are you going to say that that's the greatest generation ever? Just look at it in 1939. So the reason that that's encouraging for me is we could look at modern America we could look at the youth culture in America. We could look at the leadership in the church in America, and we could hold it in contempt, and we could say, we have a serious problem right now. The younger generation today is classified as the dumbest generation ever. Okay, now that doesn't set us up for great things, right? And if you're in the younger generation, that's definitely a little discouraging, right? And yet, a 1939 to 1940 flip is what we need. And sometimes all it means is the enemy pushes a little too far. And suddenly the church goes, you know what? I don't think we should be standing for this. The same church that allowed Hitler to invade or to put his troops in the Rhineland, the same one that allowed him to rape Austria, the same one that allowed him to take Sudetenland, the same one that allowed him to take Czechoslovakia, finally rises up when he moves into Poland. Says, That's enough. That's what we need. It's almost like we need Hitler to invade Poland so that we as the church finally stir and we say enough is enough. We are no longer sitting on our thumbs. We have the weapons of warfare that are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. Let's rise up and resist this devil. A hobbler. So what is a hobbler? Well, it's a heaven-bred answer to the needs of God's people in any given generation. Often built and designed by God decades, if not centuries, if not millennia, if not eons prior to the time in history when the Hobbelar itself is actually revealed and made fully ready. The cross 
is in God's mind long before it happens. It is being prepared. Everything in the Bible is preparing us to see the cross. It's preparing us to see a, a man, a Messiah, who will come. The anointed one, in the Greek, the Christos, who will come. He will be born of the seed of a woman in the town of Bethlehem of a virgin girl. He will be of a certain lineage. Everything is set in place long before it happens so that when it happens, we all stand back in awe. But it didn't just happen. You see, God providentially is going to move things into place. And he's even going to allow Satan to fill Judas. And he's going to allow the chief priest to conspire. And yet, what did he put in his Old Testament? That this Messiah will be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Even his enemies are going to fall into the whole providential movement to showcase that he is indeed the Messiah. That's good. That's great. If not eons prior to this time in history when the Hoblar itself is actually revealed and made fully ready. The Hoblar is an instrument of war designed by God to wholly shock the enemy and swiftly overcome them. So let me give you four attributes of a Hoblar. It's audacious. It's surprising. It's lightning fast. It is small and unassuming, but delivers a gigantic blow. So I'm going to give you an illustration of a Hobbelar. We're going to go to the scriptures. I'm going to show you a whole bunch of Hobbelars uh, in scripture. But the birth of a Hobbelar in Scotland. Now, since we are Ellerslie, I mean, that's, that's what our ministry is called, I, I have a, an affinity for the Hobbelar because William Wallace is very tightly associated with the Hobbelar. In fact, in history... If you say Hobbelar, if, if you're of the Scottish uh, uh, variety, you might recognize the word, because it's not a word we use. It's not a normal word. It comes from a Gaelic word, Hobben. And so it's not a normal word for us, but uh, for those of us of uh, the Ellerslie persuasion, we need to, ca this goes into our little box that goes under our bed. This is important stuff. So in 1270, now we technically don't know the year he was born. However, I'm going to, presume it was 1270. You know why? Because I was born in 1970, which is 700 years after this, and it's just like, that makes me feel good, okay? It gives me a glow all over, but it was right in this time. I don't, I don't like to think that he was born in 1269 or 1271, because we don't know, but it's going to be right in this time. That's why I'm convinced it was 1270. Remember, my middle name is Winston. That's why you hear me quote Winston Churchill a lot, too, so th there's reasons why these things come up on the screen. 1270, Ellerslie, but Scotland, not Ellerslie in the Windsor, right? A little baby boy is born. Well, Hobbelar, but no one sees it. It's hidden. His parents christen him William. He is trained to know right from wrong, to esteem honor, integrity, character, manhood, holiness, heroism, boldness, the work of the cross, and the authority of scripture. He is raised to endure hardship. That's an understatement. This guy knew how to work hard, and he was not afraid of anything. But built physically to wield a sword, and, and by the way, a big sword, and trained academically to understand government, society, and war. We have a little Havilar for such a time as this. this. For such a time as this moment arises. So when he's 26, 1296, the Ellerslie Estates, Scotland, Edward I, with his bloated numbers of strong and well-bred soldiers, invades Scotland, fully expecting to stamp out the small Scottish rebellion. There's no way. The, the most powerful military force in the world is England and Edward I, and he's going to claim what is his. There's no way that the Scots could possibly stand against him. The problem is he's going to mess with the wrong guy. 
You see, for all practical purposes, Wallace was ready to just be like, hey, you know, you guys do your thing. He was in the passive position, 1939 uh, Great Britain. He was in that position. And then it's going to come to his door. It's going to harm his family. It's going to burn down his estate. And suddenly he's going to rise up. Boy, you just made a mistake, Edward, right there. A multitude of well-trained English soldiers march into Scotland, an unstoppable force against a bunch of hungry ragtag Scots, and that is when William strides out of the gates of Ellerslie, burned gates uh, of Ellerslie, with the hobbler in his possession, which the Scots so desperately need. So Wallace is going to be carrying with him, he is a hobbler, but he's going to carry with him a hobbler. That's good, guys. I, and some of you know what it is, but it's, it's, it's really great. Hobblers of history. Gideon. So Gideon is a hobbler. I mean, he's audacious. Now, you could say, well, Gideon was fearful. Yeah, but the God of Gideon is going to use this little vehicle known as Gideon and his 300 men to do something that is so shocking. On paper, none of us, if we were in the war cabinet with Gideon, would ever encourage him to do what he's about to do. And yet he is going to do something that is going to catch the enemy off guard. What a hobbler does is the enemy is positioned to fight against that which it's used to fighting against. A hobbler is going to catch it where its defenses are not up. And if you can catch the enemy where his defenses are not up, ah, you've got something. I call it the tickling Avi strategy. Okay, if you're tickling Avi, Avi is a fun person to tickle. Where's Avi? There she is. Uh, if you're tickling, tickling Avi and say that I really want to get her in the side, okay, because she's very ticklish. Then what I do is I go and I get her in a different spot, and then she goes up here, and then I go, yeah, and I zing, I zing her in the side. And so if I have to get her defenses to not be up where I need to get her, right? And the same is true in how we deal battle. When you go out into this world, did you know the enemy? Well, not the enemy. Y yes, the enemy, but our battle is not against flesh and blood. So you go up and you find someone that is lost on the streets of Fort Collins, and you'll notice that their guard is up oftentimes. And so the hobbler is a way of reaching that person in a, in a way that their guard is not up. So Gideon was audacious, surprising, lightning fast. It happened very quick, guys. A small, small and unassuming, but delivering a gigantic blow. The entire Midianite army of hundreds of thousands is completely decimated, and Gideon did hardly anything, but he did precisely what was needed. He pulled a hobbler out of his satchel. David, there's a good hobbler, audacious, oh yeah, standing up against a 12 and a half foot giant. Uh, and, I mean, everyone in, his, in, in Israel was trembling, including Saul, who was a giant amongst Israel. He was head and shoulders above all of, above all of Israel. And this little boy, well, we don't actually know how old he was, could have been a teenager, right, is going to stroll into camp delivering bread and cheese. A hobbler has just arrived. He is a instrument of war designed just for this situation, but he's audacious, surprising, lightning fast. It uses the Hebrew word mahar, which means to sprint. David is going to sprint like lightning and take down that Goliath in a matter of seconds. This is not going to be hand-to-hand -hand combat in the way that Goliath is prepared to fight with sword and shield and, and uh, armor on. And so Goliath is ready to fight hand-to-hand, -hand, but David is going to take him out in a place where Goliath doesn't have a guard up, right in the forehead with a smooth stone. The enemy isn't ready for that. And as a result, Goliath's going down. Esther, audacious, surprising, 
lightning fast. Haman did not see it coming, guys. Haman is going to build, he's the great enemy of the Jews, he is going to build a gallows. You could call it a cross if you want, because that would help you understand the significance of it. And the very gallows, or the very cross that Haman is going to build to hang Mordecai on, guess who's going to hang on it? He's going to hang on it. The great twist of the cross in history. You look at the cross, it's like they erect it, and all the leaders, all, even Satan himself, he's like salivating, going, yes, crucify the Lord of glory. Well, who's going to end up hanging on it? He is. He is going to have his head crushed. The very movement against God is actually going to be his end. Audacious, surprising, lightning, fast, small and unassuming, but delivering a gigantic blow. Go, Esther. Jesus, of course, the epitome of Havilars in history. He's the capital H, Havilar. He is the whole point. All these other things point to his battle strategy. The enemy did not see it. Isn't that an amazing statement? The enemy could not see it. Now, the enemy is a liar, which is why he can also be deceived. See, he can't discern truth because he is so ingrained in lies that he himself can be conned. Isn't that an interesting statement? And so... Jesus is going to pull a fast one. That's where the term blitzkrieg even comes from. It's a fast one. It's a lightning strike on the devil. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. Listen to this. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They had no idea what they were getting themselves into. And God struck them where their defenses weren't up. And he won. The victory. What a strange way to win a victory. He looks weak. He looks defeated. He looks, he's just, I mean, he would have been a pile of flesh ripped to shreds. He would have been scourged and had his, his body torn to pieces. He would have been covered in blood, had a, a crown on his head. So as a result, even his face would have been bloody. He would have had his beard ripped out. I mean, there isn't anything about this that would, you would ever think, that's a victor right there. Now, there's your champion. As a result, the devil's guard is going down. We've got him. We've got him. Meanwhile, Jesus sort of in and through his grand military maneuver is going to, in and through that death, destroy the enemy. It's extraordinary. How about this one? The apostles. You know, they're a ragtag band. No one is going to expect fishermen, tax collectors. This is like the rabble. No one's going to expect them to turn the world upside down. But guess what? They do. Audacious, surprising, lightning fast, small and unassuming, but delivering a gigantic blow. All right, let's go back to Scotland in 1296. I, I don't know if you're catching, but I'm trying to hint at something and not give it away to that's a speaking technique, is hold things back and then reveal them over time so your audience stays around like a movie. You don't just give away the movie, you foreshadow. You hint at things to come. My kids and I, we yell out, foreshadow, you know, when it's things are obvious giveaway, like the guy sets his phone down uh, and then leaves and then they s zoom in on the phone. It's like, aha, that phone is going to have something to do with the future. Yeah, we know it. It's the same with, with God. So Scotland in 1296, ransacked, plundered, starving, weak, and very vulnerable. There is no way that the Scots can defend themselves against Edward and his bloated forces. No way. It's just an impossibility on paper. 
And yet, if you know history, of course, that's why it makes such good material, good uh, in novels and in movies. I mean, it's a great story. When England and Edward I invaded Scotland in 1296, it revealed that Scotland's historic feudal-styled military tactics, which had always proven effective, were no longer able to sustain them and must be adapted to meet the current challenge. So you guys remember feudal style? It's like everyone marches in order and line. And it is very effective because if you were, if something like that is marching against something and it's like, it's just going to be mowed down. And if everyone keeps their rank, everyone keeps their order position, it's unstoppable. Well, let me add something to that. As long as what you're fighting is also feudal styled. In other words, feudal style against feudal style, though the stronger force, the more uh, bravado in the force is going to win. And so, however, Scotland's recognizing it cannot fight feudal style to feudal style against Edward I. It's going to have to change something up. So a radical review and revision of their military approach then ensued. William Wallace and Robert the Bruce both engaged the English in a form of quasi-guerrilla warfare, with their chief strategy being, whenever possible, to pick the side of the battle and to make the ground fight for them. This tactic worked, eliminating the advantage of the English size and strength and playing England's slow-moving, feudal-styled girth against them by hitting them with the hobbler. Oh, what's the hobbler? Wallace is going to use something. He's going to invent something, if you want to say it that way, which will be known in history as the hobbler. So who invented the hobbler? Technically, God invented the hobbler, right? But the name hobbler is going to come from Wallace. So he's going to invent something called the hobbler. This allowed the Scots to win battles against vastly superior size and strength simply by wielding the tactic of speed and surprise. What is the hobbler? The advent of the hobbler. The hobbler was used by Scots as a means of gaining the element of speed and surprise essential for success, thus allowing them to engage the enemy at times and places of their choosing. You know, so I still haven't told you what the hobbler is. I just keep defining it in different ways, showing you that it's fast and it's surprising and it's audacious and it's, uh, it's small and unassuming. Meanwhile, in Ireland. So what we have, remember how I talked about providence, that God is preparing something beforehand so in the fullness of time, it can be revealed. And so Esther is a classic picture of it. David is a, you know, one of my favorite pictures of it. But of course, Jesus is the capital H Hobbler, all throughout history, even before the foundations of the earth, we see something in the heart and mind of God. We see a providence that is taking place. God is setting things in place, everything. In fact, in fact the entire history, if you study the word of God, you're going to come to the conclusion that God knew this ahead. He understood something. And so therefore, even when he's giving the law, he's giving a first. He is showing something. And what is he doing? He's revealing sin. Why does he need to reveal sin? Because he wants to show a savior, but that savior is not going to be effective unless first the world knows it's sin. They need to know sin so that they understand their need of a savior. And so everything that is going to take place is preparing. It is setting the stage for the Hobbler, capital H, Jesus Christ. That, that sounded funny, capital H, Jesus Christ. Capital H, Hobbler, who is Jesus Christ? How about that? Some of you are wondering about my spelling. Meanwhile, in Ireland... The Irish are breeding a special horse, a horse that can prove dexterous on the steep mountain face as well as move like lightning through the open meadows, a horse that is soon to be discovered in Scotland, listen to this, right around the year 1296. The breeding of this horse 
is going to be fully at its ripened state where it's ready for deployment right at 1296, right when Wallace is needing something. I need something, is saying Wallace. I have an impossibility. I need deliverance for this country. Wallace somehow finds out about this horse that is specially bred. Never has there been a horse that is actually able to work on mountainsides at the same time run like lightning. Usually those that are great on uh, mountains are slow, like a goat, okay? You don't think of a goat being a racehorse, right? And yet this is like a racehorse that has a deafness to go over rocky territory. This is Scotland in a nutshell. Scotland is full of rocks and promontories, and so as a result, to be able to effectively work, it needs to be dexterous of, in its hooves, and it also needs to be fast. And guess what? There just happens to be a horse for the first time in history that matches this need at this exact time. And by the way, it is called the hobbler. You don't call it the hobbler. You would call it the hobby horse. So what exactly is the hobbler? It's a form of military attack using, utilizing special bred war horses. Horses that are smaller, but lightning fast. These horses were built to move over the most difficult terrain with the dexterity of a mountain goat, but with the swiftness of the raging rapids. The proper use of the hobbler could cause a far larger military operation to falter and fail due to the fact that it couldn't respond quick enough to the lightning fast movements of the soldiers riding on the hobbler. So Wallace stuck his swordsman on the back of these war horses, and meanwhile, uh, Edward I is marching in his feudal-styled uh, lines, and it's, stay face forward. I don't actually know what they yelled to him. Uh, don't look to the left, don't look to the right, stay forward. And meanwhile, Wallace, knowing that, attacks him from the side where their defenses aren't up. They're ready to fight this way. They're not ready to fight. As he goes down the line, he's pulling a Sergeant York. Remember that? Uh, did you guys ever see that? Oh, that's good. If you haven't seen Sergeant York, you need to understand what that was. Uh, but he's pulling a Sergeant York. I don't know if that sounds like a turkey. Did that sound like a turkey? That was actually sort of impressive to me. I, I almost thought it was a turkey. <laughs> the Hoban, from the Gaelic Oban, meaning swift, sudden, speedy, and instant. That's where the term hobbler is actually going to come from. And we, like I said, we call it the hobby horse. And so isn't that a cool-looking horse? I like that. That's a, that's a really neat-looking horse. So the time for radical review. Now, what, what does this have to do with us? Well, first of all, I haven't even gotten this into World War II because in World War II, there will be, there's multiple hobbles in World War II that are very intriguing to me. I'll show you at least one. But in other words, things that were developed long before that were just sort of sitting there, and at the perfect time, they are going to come into use and actually create a disaster for the enemy. Uh, and it's really fascinating to think about. But for all of us, like I would say the Church of Jesus Christ, if we're trying to do feudal-styled warfare against the enemy right now and try and match him in this culture, it's like, okay, the enemy's really good with movies. The enemy's really good with media. The enemy's really good with, like, Facebook and search engines. So let's just do the same thing. This is classic Christian, where we try and follow uh, what the world is doing. And when you try and fight the enemy in his point of strength, it's like the Scots trying to fight uh, Edward I. It's like, you know what? Why don't we find the war horse that God has for us, stick our swordsman on the back, and hit him from the side? What would that look like? I, I, that's exactly my question. I don't know what that would look like today. When England and Edward I invaded Scotland in 1296, this is review, 
It revealed that Scotland's historic military tactics were no longer able to sustain them and must be adapted to meet the current challenge. A radical review and revision of their military approach then ensued. So listen to 1 Chronicles 12.32. And of the children of Issachar, which were men that had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do, so they were counting up all these tribes, and it's mentioning the children of Issachar, and it gives them a very interesting description. These men had understanding of the times, and they, as a result, knew what Israel ought to do. I don't know that we as a church know what we ought to do right now. I think we're in a state of fog where we feel vulnerable to so many things around us, whether it is the growing powers of anti-Christian sentiment in our country, whether it is something like the coronavirus. In other words, there's things that are marshaled against the church of Jesus Christ that we actually need to know how to address. You know, it's funny because the way the church has always responded to anything always shocks the world. When it responds as God would have it respond. Because we don't respond like everyone else. Everyone else may scream and run down the street like chickens with their heads cut off when they hear about the coronavirus. However, the church of Jesus Christ responds very different to the point where it actually shocks the world to see that we do not fear a virus. The only thing we fear is God Almighty. And we recognize that though a thousand fall at our side and 10,000 at our right hand, it shall not come near us. So therefore, we are bold as lions in the midst of the darkest hour. And so as a result, what that looks like for us today, I don't want to presume that I know other than I can give you general descriptions. But what I crave is a Habilar. A Habilar, the Salvation Army in 1880. One of the most interesting studies. If you haven't studied the Salvation Army, now when you think of Salvation Army today, you, you, it's, it's like a humanitarian organization more than it is, and they ring bells over Christmas, and we, we lose sight of what it originally was. William and Catherine Booth, whew, it's a powerful picture of the church of Jesus Christ mobilized not to just do good deeds, but to bring the gospel to nations. In the first years of this ministry, they, they brought in like 300,000 souls into the kingdom of heaven. This is a massive movement that shocked the world because what they did was not normal. They had a hobbler for their day. Now, what they do today isn't a hobbler. <laughs> And it doesn't have the same effect. And oftentimes, just like the Salvation Army, we get entrenched in our traditions and we keep doing the same thing that we've always done because that's just what we do. As opposed to recognizing a radical review and revision needs to ensue. We need to recognize that we as the church were built and designed for such a time as this to apply the truth of Scripture, not to compromise it, but to bring the truth to bear upon this world in a way that works. Salvation Army in 1880. God showed them their hobbler. It was the use of, this is sort of awkward, I have to admit, brass bands. Like for us, that, we're like, how could that work? That's a, I've, uh, every time I study the Salvation Army, I chuckle to myself even as I do it because what they did then would not work today, right? Brass bands. It's like, okay, if you're wanting to get a following, that's not going to work. It worked back then. Brass bands, the wielding of the language and the insignia of an army. Back then, the romance of war was in its, its heights. Okay, so this is before World War I where the romance of war is going to have the, its, uh, its nice gloss you know, knocked off of it. Uh, it's, its sheen you know, uh, knocked off. And, but at this time, 
The ideals of war, the ideal of military ranks was very attractive to people. It was very noble. And so when they, they began to take on the language and the insignia of the army, and so like William Booth is the general, and people responded to that. The leasing of secular theaters in which to hold their meetings. Boy, this was controversial back then. You cannot talk about the gospel in that building. And they're sort of like, watch us. And they would go. And the reason this worked, when they were in the west end or the east end of London, which was the poor district, is where they went, which is, again, another shocker. It's like, whoa, what are you doing in there? That's like depraved. You're taking your family there? Yeah, that's where the lost are. So they went to the east end of London, and they rented out the theaters that the, these people that didn't know God were used to coming. They didn't have the buildings that everyone was like, oh, I don't go in there. That's not like me. They went and... They leased the buildings that everyone was familiar with coming in, and they had massive effect and impact. People were giving their lives to God in these theaters that what they did during the rest of the time was disgusting, and yet what God did is he went in and took that very territory. The employment of secular music overlaid with Christian lyrics. Boy, could you imagine? These are some highly controversial things to do, and yet... I, I, when you study it, you're like, okay, I guess, I mean, it did work, but it, I get a, somewhat offended. You know, when I read this, it's like, oh boy, this is, I don't know if I could handle that. And yet, what we're seeing is someone who did not, con- if you study William and Catherine, I mean, they come from the holiness movement, okay? They're not just guys who are looking to compromise. They want to reach souls without compromise, And so what we oftentimes look at as compromise may not be compromise, it's just different. It doesn't fit our grid of conservatism. These guys definitely did not fit the grid. I'll I'll acknowledge that. Listen to this one. The near instant sending off of the new recruits into active ministry labor. Whoa! Whoa, don't do that. I mean, that's my instinct too. But I tell you what, they had people going into all the world. They would accept Christ. It's like, all right, you're in charge of this base over in India. It's like, I've never been to India. Great. Trust God. Go. Next. I mean, this was just extraordinary. What they were doing was exploding all over the world. And the use of women in their leadership. What? What? You're not allowed to. 1880? Oh, no. That's, and yet, unashamedly, they said, women have the authority to preach the gospel just like anyone else. Just look at the first ones commissioned to go share the gospel. It was all those Marys around the, the tomb. Yeah, and they were told to go and tell the disciples of the good news. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to take everyone that is breathing that wants to go share the gospel, and we're sending them out to share the gospel. So some of you are so offended by the Salvation Army by the time we got done with that one little list. And yet, they shared the gospel all over the world. And people came to know Jesus in a radical way. This military maneuver wholly surprised the enemy. Can't you see why? It's surprising us in this room. We're like, I don't know if you're supposed to do that. Who was totally unprepared for this movement of grace. With speed, audacity, suddenness, and boldness, the hobbler of 1880 charged into the fray, devastating the powers of darkness the world over. Whew. Every culture has its access points. I, if, you, if you remember my message years ago, I, I brought up the same list. It's a fascinating list. There's certain things in every culture where we are, what we could say, susceptible to hearing the truth of the gospel even though we don't know it. Like there's things, like the flash mob is just a classic illustration. So I've joked with the Ellerslie students over the years that we should form some kind of flash mob team and go into places because people, when they're being flash mobbed, are so intrigued that they'll just sit there and stare. You could share with them the gospel and they're just so excited that they're in a flash mob and they get out their camera and they'll film it and then they'll show it to everyone. 
I mean, think about that, okay? It could be a hobbler. It's a weird one, but it, it could be. The innovative. People love unusual things. The improv. Caroling. I mean, just think about it. You can actually walk up to someone's house in a certain time of year and share with them the gospel through song, and they will bring everyone in their family to the door to listen to it. Okay? In other words, our culture has certain spots where its weaponry is down. Trick-or-treat. It is, again, another time of year. Now, I'm not a trick-or-treater, right? I'm not going to prosper the notions of what is celebrated by most people on Halloween. However, what I can say is, boy, people will allow you to come up to their door, or you can come up to, they can come up to your door, and you can engage with them. I mean, how often do we have these things? So I'm not saying that this is our hobbler. I'm just showing you how culture works and how in every culture there is access. So let's get to World War II. Winston Churchill. Have I told you that my middle name is Winston? <laughs> that was joked about during the, the graduation weekend because uh, I guess I've mentioned it a few times throughout this series. But uh, all right. Winston Churchill says, my principal fear, he's speaking of in 1940, was of German tanks coming ashore. So what's happening right now is it's called the Battle of Britain in 1940 and uh, Hitler is looking dominant. In fact, in France... They have made the, uh, the declaration that uh, Great Britain will have its neck wrung like a chicken within three weeks. If you look at all of the paperwork of the Germans, of their anticipations, they figured it would be, you know, maybe a three-week to, you know, five-week war. It's, this is going to be done quick. Okay, Great Britain does not have the defenses in place. They are not prepared to defend against this massive strength known as the German army. And so uh, Churchill, they were actually more ready than, uh, Churchill, or than Hitler recognized at the time or that France recognized. But the principal fear was of German tanks coming ashore. You see, it's not very easy. There's a, what is it, 20 miles across in the English Channel in the, sh in the smallest area. But it's like the English Channel is not that far, right? But you can't just drive a tank across the English Channel. So, uh, so but... Churchill is concerned that they've invented something that could get tanks over because they could fight soldiers landing. They have a, an answer for the air attack, at least they're hoping they do. But if Hitler has invented something to get tanks over, that's going to pose a problem. And so he's actually trying to come up with solutions that if they did invent something, then he could solve it. But listen to how his mind is working. My principal fear in 1940 was of German tanks coming ashore. Since my mind was attracted to landing tanks on their coasts. So Churchill's saying, all right, I want to take the offensive against these guys. I don't want just a defensive war. And so what would I want to do more than anything else? I need to get my tanks over there. But how do you get tanks across the English Channel? And so he's inventing something, but he didn't start inventing it in 1940. And that's, that's what's so intriguing about this. So I naturally thought they might have the same idea. I had always been fascinated by amphibious warfare. So amphibious warfare, I know there's people in here that could describe amphibious warfare better than I could, but it's sort of like that which comes to the land out of the water. So it's like the deployment of troops, that's a simple way of describing amphibious warfare, like you think D-Day, you know, those transports, and so suddenly they come out of the water and <laughs> rush onto the land. Well, how about getting tanks across that way? How about getting you know, the armored vehicles to literally come up onto the shore and then boom, drive off the boat onto the land. It's like, whoa, wouldn't that be amazing? And that's the advent of what we call amphibious warfare. So I'd always been fascinated by amphibious warfare and the idea of using tanks to run ashore from specially constructed landing craft on beaches 
where they, might, where they were not expected. Remember, their, their guard is not up for tanks. They are not prepared to have a tank roll over them. Had long been in my mind. Ten days before I joined Mr. Lloyd George's government as Minister of Munitions on July 17, 1917, that's 23 years earlier, guys, I had prepared without expert assistance a scheme. In, in Churchill's book on the Second World War, he is going to show his notes that he actually wrote back in 1917 on amphibious warfare and this invention that he had in his mind that he wanted to use. But then because of Gallipoli, and it was a failure in Gallipoli that he was in charge of or he was responsible for in World War I, he is actually removed from his position and never able to do this. But now, 23 years later, this guy with these little hand-sketched notes has this notion that he's like, well, now I'm prime minister. <laughs> and I have an idea that came to me 23 years ago, and this idea is actually going to change World War II, amphibious warfare. And the Allies, I mean, Hitler didn't have this, but Churchill did. So 23 years later, Intense energy was imparted to the development of all types of landing craft. This is a hobbler. And a special department was formed in the Admiralty to deal with these matters. By October 1940, the trials of the first landing craft, the LCT, were in progress. An improved design followed, many of which were built in sections for more convenient transport by sea to the Middle East, where they began to arrive in the summer of 1941. These proved their worth, and as we gained experience, the capabilities of later editions of these strange craft steadily improved. Oh, look at that. Isn't that intriguing? I don't know if everyone's intrigued by something like that, but if you recognize how ships worked, that there, you, need, you need deep water to be able to even get up to a port. That's why port cities are even there. This is going to be able to come up to a beach and then let down its door, and then you drive out a tank onto a beach. Isn't that one of the coolest thoughts? That's like an invention. This is a hobbler. And the enemy does not have an answer to it. They're like, uh, wait, whoa, hey, we've got tanks coming at us. Isn't that great? So look at that. That is, that is a great thing. I think I might be more excited than some of you in here. The LCT was suitable for cross-channel raiding operations or for more extended work in the Mediterranean, but not for long voyages in the open sea. The need arose for a larger, more seaworthy craft, which besides transporting tanks and other vehicles on ocean voyages, could also land them over beaches like the LCT. I gave directions for the design of such a vessel, which was called Landing Ship Tank. These aren't the most creative names, I have to admit. The LST. Look at that, guys. That is so intriguing to me. Could you imagine just sort of plowing that thing into a beach and then unloading it and just starting to hit the enemy? I mean, that's, that's cool. The results grew steadily across the years of struggle, and thus in good time they formed the apparatus, which eventually played an indispensable part in our greatest plans and deed. Yes? Deeds. And it changed the history of war. Just like the Hobblar in Scotland, so will be amphibious warfare and the development of these LCTs in World War II is going to change war. So here's my thought. It isn't about World War II. It's not about Scotland and uh, William Wallace. It's about today. Lord, what is our hobbler? What grand solution have you prepared in advance for us, sorry about the D on advance there. I, I must have been thinking about the advanced training that was starting this week. 
What grand solution have you prepared in advance for us to walk in? Isn't it an amazing thought to think that God has seen this moment, he has seen the dynamics and the drama that we are going to be in right now, and that he has had it in his mind, and that he knew that there would be groups of people like us, known as the church, that would be moved in faith to look to his word and say, God, we trust you, and we believe that you have not left us without a remedy, and that he has a remedy, he has a solution in his mind that has been in his mind even before we're bringing this topic up. In other words, I didn't invent providence. God is providence. He is the one who sees. And as a result, we just need to trust that he is the one. And then we wait for the wisdom. When we ask for wisdom, that's what we're asking for. We're asking for the hublar. We're asking for the unique solution to our life situations, whether that's at the individual level or it's at the corporate level or it's at the big-time corporate level, like the church of Jesus Christ the world over. We need a deliverer. And it's not going to be found in our own ingenuity. It's going to be found in his war chest. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is not to take out the LGBT movement. It's to love the LGBT community. It's to win them for Christ. We need to know how to do this. We have opponents in this world that are against what we stand for, what we live for. And yet our desire isn't to destroy them. It's to love them and win them. Our battle is different than in World War II where they were trying to destroy Nazis. Our job is to deal with the spiritual powers that are puppeteering the lost people of this earth so that they can be set free to come unto a saving understanding of who Jesus Christ is. Great moment in history, guys, Genesis twenty-two fourteen. Now, I, I'm, I'm going to sort of start with the assumption that you know what is happening in this story, that Abraham has been asked to take his son to a mountain that God would show him and to sacrifice him. I mean, that's quite a, quite a thing to think about. Now, it's a picture of what is to come because the very mountain that he is going to be led to is going to be the very mountain in the future that Jesus Christ, the ultimate hobbler, will die on. So God isn't just accidentally picking a mountain. He is strategically showing all of us something very specific. And Abraham called the name of the place Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. That's a combination of Jehovah, which is the I am that I am, the one that was, the one that is and always will be, the same. And then it's going to put something with it that this Jehovah, this I am, will always do. What will he always do? What does he do? Did he do? Does he do? And will he do in the future? He will see ahead what needs to be done and make provision for it. He will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Now, that's ultimately fulfilled, guys, on that very mountain (laughs) of Calvary. The hill of Calvary, as many of us have said it, the hill of Calvary, on the mount of the Lord, it was provided. But the key line for us is it shall be provided. It's not just that it was, it's that it is, and it always will be provided on the mountain of the Lord. I don't care what hill you're on today. You can take 
the shed blood of Jesus, the great purchase of that cross, and apply it to it, and there is a solution. It's a lowercase h, hobblar, that God has for each of our lives. It's called wisdom. It is the mind of Christ given to us for our unique situation. So there's two stories, uh, and I, I really am not that good at sharing them, but they're always two of my favorites uh, to share, and I'll try and do it very quickly. But they just sort of enunciate this. It's a great meditation to finish this on. One is the car in the jungle. We've got some beeping going on out there. Do you guys hear that, or is that just me? Uh, we have the, the car in the jungle, and I always get this story sort of mangled, and I always look to Philip to see if he can fill in the details. You remember what uh, country this was? The Andes Mountains. Okay, I always stick them in, in the wrong place, I think. But uh, they're in the Andes Mountains, and it's a missionary family that is driving along. Their brakes go out, and they lose control. They, finally, they, they make their way off safely to the side of the road, but they're in the middle of nowhere. But the, this missionary family knows that God doesn't make mistakes, that they're there on purpose. And so they believe that God has a supply. He has an answer. He has provision in this mountain. And so they pray, first thing. But they, they don't have brakes. They're in the middle of nowhere. They don't have a phone. They can't call anyone. And so they begin to pray about what they should do. And God leads them to start to explore the, uh, the mountainous terrain. That I always called it a jungle. So when I'm saying a jungle, I don't know that it's a jungle. I don't actually, that's just my mental picture. What would be the accurate picture? Forest? Is that more accurate? I picture trees. So whatever, however I heard the story, I have trees in it, right? So obviously, I'm not giving a lot of details. I just call it the car in the jungle. It's a true story, even though Eric's really mangling it. But I've mangled it every time I've ever shared it, but I still share it because it's so powerful to me. And so they, they come upon a car that is covered with branches in the middle of this, we'll call it a forest, okay, even though I called it a jungle here. And they're like, whoa, there's a car here in the middle of nowhere in this nowheresville place. And they uncover it. It's the same model car that they have which is like a 20-year-old model. And it's the same model the same year. It's like, this is so weird. And so they, they can see that God's provision is here because what they need is the brakes off of this thing. But they, so they, they get into it, they, they get into the car, and they recognize it's been stripped clean. There is nothing on the car. And so this, their heart drops because they realize here they are in the middle of nowhere, and yet their model of car is there, and yet it's stripped? I mean, that's just ridiculous. How did that happen? The one part of the car they can't get in is the trunk. It's like jammed. And so they spend the next while trying to get that open. And even though they can't figure out why they're trying to get it open, they figure, well, that's the only thing that's left. So they finally pry open the trunk. And you know what's inside? There's a box inside of brand new brake parts for that model of car. And so if you could imagine 20 years before, these brake parts being set in that trunk, in that forest, jungle, whatever it was, in that spot for that family. I just think that that is beautiful. And when we begin to look at life that way, to recognize no matter what mountain we're on, it helps to have it in a mountain in that story. So thanks, Philip, for getting us in a mountain. Whatever mountain you're on, the Lord will provide. The cripple over the ranges, this is a story in Ethiopia where there's a mountain range in the middle and that you had, is it the eastern ranges or western ranges? You guys remember which side it was? Let's call it the western ranges to go to the eastern ranges. But on the Western Ranges, the gospel had come and they had been changed by the, the gospel of Jesus Christ and there was a revival and there was a church growing, but they recognized on the other side were the cannibals and they were evil people. And if you go over there and try and share the gospel, you'll get killed and eaten, okay? It's not pleasant, right? 
And so uh, they finally feel burdened that they can't keep this gospel to themselves and they need to go over the ranges to the eastern side. And so they, they call forth all the men out that feel called and led of the Holy Spirit to be missionaries to the eastern side. And so these men come forward, about 20 of them, and this, this crippled man who couldn't even walk, he sort of dragged himself along the ground. His back leg was like, you know, uh, actually bent back towards uh, his back instead of you know, normal. And so he would take a stick and, and crawl forward. That He came forward uh, to go over the ranges. And so they were very pleasant to him, just basically saying, we really appreciate your heart. Obviously, you're not going to be able to do this. So next, uh, and, but he had, the, he had a burden for it. And he recognized that he was not treated as a valid missionary for some, you know, for some reason. Why? Uh, well, he can't go over the mountains. I mean, you could understand why. He's a cripple. He's not in a position to do this. And yet, because they didn't see it, he felt so burdened for these lost souls on the other side of the ranges. He had been saved by Jesus, changed by Jesus. He wanted to give, and he knew God wanted him to go, so he went off on his own. He took a little pouch of berries and, uh, with him, and he took his stick, and he went over the mountain ranges. And the next day, they're like, where's so-and-so? And I can't find him. And I mean, they, they came and imagined that he could survive, right? And so it took him multiple days to get over this, this mountain range, literally eating berries along the way and uh, from whatever plant he could come to. And he, he arrives on the other side. It's the most exhausting trek any, uh, you could, any of us could ever imagine. He arrives in this village, and he's in sort of, a, once he gets there, he sort of goes into like a coma state, and his body just sort of shuts down. And, you know, all, if it's a movie, all goes black, you know, as you see the cannibals moving towards him. And you're like, oh, no, he's dead, uh, literally. Uh, dead meat, I guess, would be the term. Uh, and so it's, it's a bad situation. So here's the backstory. What we don't know is what happened years, decades before this, in this very village that he has arrived in. And that is that there was a plague that came through uh, this village and that there was a cripple in the village that was a very, was able to perceive things that no one else could and, and recognize that there was a berry, a very specific berry, that when eaten could actually help these people. And so it was a cripple that actually brought the means of salvation to this people. And they were saved from whatever this disease, plague, you know, whatever it was. It was a cripple that had actually helped them. So now, all these years later, a cripple shows up on the other side of the ranges. So instead of feeling threatened, they recognize that the gods are speaking to them. And that someone is, this guy has come to rescue them. And they have a desperation in their soul. A darkness is upon them. And they, they sense a need for hope and for truth. But this guy is in a coma. So they're all standing around hoping that he'll come out. And finally he wakes up and he's surrounded by these people. And they're waiting upon him. But they don't speak the exact language. It was close enough that it didn't take long before they begin to communicate. And in due time, he has saved every single one of them. Every single one of them gave their life to Christ. Even though he might not have been the most eloquent, he was the chosen vehicle. He was the one readied. And because he heeded that burden, he was right where he needed to be at the exact juncture of time that he needed to be there. And so once a year, they would have a gathering of, of the church uh, over on the west side of the mountains, and they would all gather together, a big, huge like festival type of a thing, and they were singing songs, and suddenly they hear this, singing in the distance, coming towards them. And it's this mighty throng of people. And it is all those on the eastern side that have crossed the mountain ranges for the annual big event. And they're singing the songs. They seem to know the songs. And who are they carrying? 
but the cripple. Could you imagine that moment? That's, that's, that's quite a, a scene. That'd make for a great movie, by the way. We need to uh, figure these stories. I need to get my data a little more accurate when I give the stories so that uh, we can get it down. But it's a hobbler. I believe that God desires to do something in our age and generation that will catch our enemy, which is not the people of this earth, but our enemy off guard. And that's what I want us to go after. I want us to go after it in our own life. I want us to go after the wisdom of God for our individual lives, but also as a church. Father, we ask that you would give us your mind, that you would give us wisdom. We believe that on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided for us, that you are Jehovah Jireh. You are the Lord God that provides. You have seen this situation that we all face in our individual lives, our marriages, our families. You see our challenges and our trials. You are not caught off guard by them, but you have precisely what we need. You have the remedy in yourself for us. And so we call upon you, Lord Jesus, to supply for us now. And we declare that we are believers. We believe that you will provide And Lord, we also need provision in the big picture for us as a church. I pray that every single person in here would be supplied the wisdom that they need to deal with the culture around them, the friends that they have in their life in regards to the coronavirus. Lord, that we would be carriers of good news, not evil news, not doom and foreboding, but we would have cheer and joy and life to share. Lord Jesus, may we see this situation turned on its head and that the mighty armies of Edward would be struck sideways. Lord Jesus, build us with a hobbler to effectively reach the lost. Specifically, I have a burden for the LGBTQ community. Lord Jesus, that we would have a specific solution, an ability, an anointing to be able to effectively reach them, to see them set free. Lord Jesus, we need your weapons, not our own. We don't want our own ingenuity, we want yours. Make us like Gideon's in this generation, like David's, like Esther's. Lord, may we be able to reach out and grab the power and efficacy of the shed blood of Jesus and wield it in this hour. We love you, Lord Jesus. It's in the precious name we pray and ask this. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.